Welcome back to Instrumental, a podcast about music in the mind. My name's Bria, and I'm a music therapist who's always curious to understand what is it about music that's so powerful and impactful for people. This podcast reviews music psychology research and gives you practical takeaways to incorporate it into your daily life. In this episode, we're asking the question, how can music help us form social bonds? Can simply playing music together start building a trusting relationship with another person? Keep listening to discover the possible role of rhythmic entrainment in helping us answer these questions. I'm coming up on my one-year anniversary of living in Portland, Oregon, which has been awesome. And before we get into today's topic, I actually want to tell you a story of when I first moved to Portland, where I got this really cool connection to my new city through music. Let me set the stage. It's August 2017, and it's a few days before the solar eclipse. And that was a really big deal up here in the Pacific Northwest because there are parts where there are going to be a total solar eclipse in Oregon. And when you live somewhere cool like Portland or where something cool is happening, like a total solar eclipse, people come to visit you, which is great. My parents and my aunt were in town to help me move in, but also because they wanted to see the eclipse. My aunt suggested that we go to a Portland Thorns game, which is not something I would have chosen to do on my own. I'm, I'm not really a sports fan. The Thorns is Portland's professional women's soccer team, and I had never been to a professional soccer game before. I, I did not realize how much people get into soccer up here. The game had this really great energy, and tons of fans show up. Over 16,000 fans on average come to a Thorns game, which is the number one average attendance for women's soccer. An important reason for this high turnout may be a part of the Portland soccer scene that I have not seen at any other sports game, the Rose City Riveters. The Rose City Riveters are a Thorns fan club that sets up over three sections at the north end of Providence Park during all the home games. These three sections essentially become a huge cheering section where bass drums are played and leaders who sing and dance and cheer and wave flags for the entire game. It's amazing. So if you buy a ticket in one of those three sections, you're not going to sit down for the entire game. And walking into the park for the first time, I had no idea that this fan club, the Riveters, even existed, but I definitely heard them while I was walking to my seat. The Riveters' bass drum, before the game even started, was playing this really repetitive two-note rhythm, kind of like a heartbeat. So I'm finding my spot, opening up my drink, and I almost immediately put my drink down because I look around and I notice that everyone else around me is doing this movement along to the rhythm and I have this magnetic need to join in. So on the two drum beats, everyone's doing two claps and in the space between the two beats, they're opening up their hands with their palms faced out and forward. 
And even then, I had never been to a game before, and I didn't know why we were doing it, but I got on board and started doing these movements myself. And oddly enough, it was really comforting. I was in a new place, surrounded by mostly strangers, and while I was taking part in this ritual I had no context for, I could not have told you why we were doing it, I immediately felt 100% more invested in the team than when I first sat down. Was it a fluke that going to the Thorns game and taking part in this music and rhythmic chant made me an instant fan and gave me the sense of belonging with my new hometown? Today, we're going to explore the role of music in social bonding. More specifically, the role of rhythm and entrainment. And entrainment is basically our ability to synchronize our movements with someone else and how that entrainment can support trust and cooperation and a ton of other pro-social helpful behaviors among people who otherwise may not have a reason to form a bond. There's a common phrase that humans are social creatures, which seems to make sense off the bat. We evolved as part of tribes, and relationships are super important to our health and well-being. Throughout most of when we evolved, we relied on other people to survive, and coordinating large groups of people towards a shared project enabled us to thrive in our environment and build the pyramids and culture and essentially the world that we live in today. This need for others and connection even speaks to a really basic part of ourselves as individuals. This this was a fact that took me a while to embrace because I am very, very, very very introverted. But nevertheless, I'm coming around to the idea that even I need people and relationships to function as a healthy person. If we're socially isolated, it's not good for our health. Feeling lonely or that you don't have anyone to talk to is associated with mental health issues like depression, poor overall physical health measures, and even earlier death. Yikes. There are lots of reasons to make meaningful connections with other people. For most of human history, music has also been a highly social activity that was one way to build these really tight social bonds, even among really large groups of people. Try to think back to before iPods and earbuds were everywhere and we used music to shut out our environment in public. Before recording technology, music was almost always a social activity that involved other people. Like, if you wanted to go hear music, but you could not play music yourself, you would have gone out to a live performance. A lot of times, music making was a social activity that everyone did. There was no distinction between the performers and the audience members like there is today. If people were making music, you just joined in, either by singing or grabbing an instrument or tapping along or dancing. There's so many ways to interact with music in social settings. You could listen to a live concert, improvise with a group of people, write a song, dance to a partner with music. It's, it's hard to think of a musical activity that can't potentially involve other people. Okay, we've established that humans are social creatures and that music is a highly social activity, but the question we're trying to tackle today is, how does music help people build and maintain social relationships? What about that rhythm at the soccer game immediately got me on board as a fan and helped me feel more comfortable in my new hometown? Why is music such a powerful tool in bringing people together? Essentially, what that drumming and the hand movements I was doing in my seat were doing 
was getting everyone in the stadium to entrain to each other. And the key word throughout this episode is going to be entrainment, which can be defined as two separate bodies synchronizing their actions together. Like, stepping in time at the same time allows soldiers to entrain their movements into a march. Throughout history, there's been a lot of survival value to humans being able to coordinate their movements to reach a shared goal, even without music in the background. Think of a group of people rowing a boat or trying to pull a really heavy load. If the group's able to align their actions or synchronize their movements so that they all row the oars or pull the rope at the same time, the group's going to be more efficient and more successful in their ultimate goal, either getting the boat to its final destination or moving the heavy load they have to move. And if you're working together with another person towards a shared goal, you're probably going to already have a social affiliation to the others in the group and even like them more than a complete stranger because both of you have some kind of shared value that you're both working towards. Music in and of itself is a really easy way to help multiple people synchronize their movements together. For example, take ballroom dancing. If you've ever taken dance lessons with a partner, you know that at first it's really tough to line up your movements, and you spend most of the first few songs looking down at your feet. But eventually, you're able to read each other's movements, and the dancing gets a lot smoother and enjoyable. It's the beat of the music that helps both dance partners predict when the other person is going to move, which allows them to step and turn and glide in tandem with each other. All that complex choreography is possible because the beat of the music is an external timing map for the dancer's movements, and music itself is a really powerful stimulus to help entrain a person's movements. Auditory information can be projected over fairly large distances, so a pretty large group of people can all align with the same beat, and the music or hearing that information, that organizing information auditorily, frees up your visual system to focus on another task while you're listening. Music's ability to help people synchronize actually increases pro-social behaviors, even towards strangers, and even if you're not working towards some task that's essential to survival. To look more carefully at how entrainment influences our social actions, a study by Kokel and colleagues asked this question, how can a shared rhythmic experience impact how we act with other people? Or more specifically, how does musical synchronization impact interpersonal behavior and what brain activity is associated with both rhythmic behavior and pro-social behavior? To answer these questions, the researchers invited 18 adult women into their lab for an experiment. For illustration purposes, let's pretend that one of the participants, participant A, we'll say, um, we're going to follow her and we're going to give her a name. Her name's going to be Alice. Alice shows up at the lab and first does a training session where she learns a syncopated rhythm. And really broadly, a syncopated rhythm involves some notes falling on unpredictable or weak beats, so it's not the easiest to pick up. 
Alice is learning this moderately challenging syncopated rhythm because she's going to perform the same rhythm again later, but while lying in an fMRI machine so that the researchers can take pictures of what her brain is doing while performing the rhythm under different conditions. During this training, two assistants help Alice learn the rhythm. One is wearing a blue shirt and the other is wearing a red shirt. After learning the rhythm, Alice lays down and gets slid into the fMRI machine. And if you've ever seen an fMRI machine, there's not a lot of space. So when I say in the rest of this episode that Alice is drumming, air quotes, in the fMRI machine, she's actually just tapping out the rhythm she learned on a little button box. This is because an fMRI machine takes really, really, really high-resolution pictures of your brain, and any extraneous movement could distort the picture. So, Alice is in the fMRI machine and performs that rhythm several times. During some trials, Alice thinks, again, the keyword here is thinks or believes, that one of the assistants, either the red-shirted assistant or the blue-shirted assistant that she met earlier, is playing with her. Here's the tricky part, though. In reality, her co-drummers were just recordings. No one was actually playing along with Alice. Sometimes she's told that her co-drummer is the red-shirted assistant who synchronizes their playing with her. When Alice drums her syncopated rhythm, the assistant is playing about the same thing. Here's a clip from the actual experiment of what that might have sounded like. And sometimes Alice is told that her co-drummer was the blue-shirted assistant who plays out of sync with Alice, something completely different that doesn't match the rhythm Alice is playing at all. Something like this. This whole time, the fMRI machine is taking pictures of Alice's brain in an area called the caudate nucleus, which is located towards the center of the brain. It's pretty deep in there. The researchers were actually monitoring the bilateral caudate. Caudates? Caudate? Anyways, the bilateral caudate nuclei. They're monitoring both of them because you have two, one within each hemisphere of your brain. The researchers were interested in this particular brain structure because it's activated when we synchronize our movements with an external stimulus, when we process a reward, and it may be involved in how we choose future behaviors based on past experience. So the researchers thought that the caudate might be a shared neural structure that reinforces our relationship between others, our prosocial behavior, and synchronization. All right, back to the experiment. Alice finishes all of her drumming trials, and she's led into another room to fill out some paperwork. The red-shirted assistant shows up again with a cup of eight pencils for Alice to fill out the questionnaires, and they seem to accidentally spill the cup, even though they do this for every single participant. They pretend that they're a klutz. And then, out of the seeming goodness of her heart, Alice helps the assistant pick up the pencils. She doesn't know it at the time, but the spilled pencils is a test of how helpful or cooperative she is in helping the assistant pick up everything. It's called the pro-social commitment test. This pencil pickup test is actually a pretty widespread measure for how helpful and pro-social people are, which to me seems kind of unofficial and maybe unscientific, but thinking 
on it a little more, it's actually kind of practical. It mirrors a real life situation of whether we're willing to help out someone in a low stakes way. For this pencil pickup test that measures helpful behavior, participants in Alice's situation helped pick up an average of 5.2 pencils if they believe that the assistant who dropped them had drummed with them in sync earlier in the experiment. Remember, in reality, Alice had actually drummed along with a recording, but her perception was that she had a positive social history with the red-shirted assistant, and that was enough to influence her behavior and help them pick up more pencils. In contrast, another participant B, let's call her Beatrice, might go through the exact same experience Alice did. But if the blue-shirted assistant walked in and dropped the pencils, Beatrice might not have gotten up as quickly or not even have gotten up at all to help the assistant who she thought had played out of sync with her. Participants in Beatrice's situation only picked up an average of 1.4 pencils. That's a pretty big difference, a difference of almost four pencils when compared with Alice's helpfulness. And this was found to be statistically significant. Both Alice and Beatrice probably weren't consciously aware that they were being more helpful or holding a grudge towards either assistant. So how did the researchers explain this difference in cooperation? Remember, the researchers were also trying to understand rhythmic entrainment, bilateral caudate activity, and whether these factors impacted how participants acted in the prosocial commitment test or the pencil pickup test. What else did this experiment find? The brain scans found that the bilateral caudate, again, because you have one caudate on each side of your brain, showed increased activity when their drum partner synchronized with them. This indicates that when we entrain with someone else musically, our brain processes this action like a reward. We were successful in completing some kind of goal with that person. And we want to continue this activity because our brain feels like we're achieving that goal and that our actions are happening successfully. But there's a catch. This increased caudate activity, this is, again, this is the part of your brain that helps you synchronize your movement with someone else and rewards you for completing some kind of goal. This caudate activity increase was only found when participants learn the rhythm relatively quickly. Let's say there was a third participant, C. We're going to call her Chelsea, who had a pretty tough time learning the syncopated rhythm during the initial training session. When Chelsea performed the rhythm in the fMRI scanner, her brain was not as likely to have shown this increased caudate activity. The researchers think that for participants like Chelsea, they had to focus much more inwardly to correctly perform the rhythm, so they weren't even paying attention to the social environment and in turn would not get that reward when one of the drummers synced up with them when they were playing. And this theory is consistent with the results from the pencil pickup test. If the synchronized red-shirted assistant dropped the pencils, Chelsea, again, who had trouble performing the rhythm at all, would be more likely to help out. But if the blue-shirted assistant was the one to drop the pencils, Chelsea was no more likely to not help them. Let me say that again, or state it another way. Participants who had a tough time performing the rhythm and learning it were not more 
likely to have acted in a punitive way towards the blue shirt assistant, like Beatrice kind of acted like she was holding a grudge towards the blue shirted assistant. In short, these pro-social benefits of rhythmic entrainment might only happen when we have a relatively comfortable music experience and we can appreciate that we're actually working on the same musical task with someone. If we're worried about just playing the rhythm at all, we can't make those pro-social connections with others. And even though this is just one study, there are many others looking at the relationship between entrainment between people and its positive impact on their behavior. One similar study was done with young children by Kirshner and Tomasello that showed that four-year-olds who make music together are more cooperative and helpful than others who had similar social interactions that did not involve music. The fact that the same pro-social effect of musical entrainment at a pretty young age is consistent with the idea that music serves some kind of survival function as humans evolved. The same observation that music activities lead children to be more helpful could indicate that this is ingrained in us rather than being a culturally taught phenomenon. If you're in the mood to read these studies yourself, those are definitely linked in the show notes, and I encourage you to check them out. Okay, here's the part of the podcast where I ask, so what? How can understanding how music increases social bonding be used in real life? As a music therapist, I take advantage of music's ability to help us form these bonds and feel connected to people. Let's say I'm working with a a pretty large group for the first time, and as a therapist, it's really important for me to establish some kind of therapeutic rapport, a basic level of trust so that we can maximize our goals for the session. Some studies indicate that this trusting relationship between a therapist and a client and the client's trust in each other is one of the most single influential factors in successful therapeutic outcomes. What to do? I don't have the time to get to know everyone individually, but it's still really important to the therapeutic process that my clients form a social bond with myself and others in the group. Luckily, as we've just learned, music can help me meet these goals all at the same time. I might open a session with a new group with a drumming activity so that everyone's playing a percussion instrument to the same pulse. And because I know there are these unconscious social payoffs that are more likely to happen when people feel successful in the rhythm activity, I'd probably start off with a fairly straightforward rhythm, like we're all playing a pretty simple rhythm at the same time. I want really clear entrainment with each other, so I'm not going to start off a new drumming group with a bunch of fancy, complex rhythms that are easy to mix up. And then, once I feel if everyone in the group has a good grasp of the rhythm, we could always play around with the rhythm so they're more complicated or change up the dynamics or the speed or maybe give some people a chance to solo based on how I'm reading the group's dynamic. There are a ton of different directions to grow in or going, but only if we establish that grounding rhythm in the first place. At the same time, the musics, the rhythms that we're in training to serve as the shared activity that we're all working at. The drumming activity is an opportunity for people to work on this goal of creating shared music where they can participate at their own personal level. 
I've noticed some people love shining and being the center of attention, so they might take solos. Some people just prefer to hang out in the background and help keep that heartbeat going. And some other people just prefer to listen. And this is all totally okay in music therapy. After the drumming ends, we also might verbally process how we accomplish this goal as a team and reinforce those ideas with a discussion. Even if you don't have time in your schedule to go to a weekly drum circle meetup or something, it's still pretty cool how entrainment changes how we feel about other people. Unfortunately, it seems like trust in others is eroding a little bit more every day. Like, take today's political climate. There's a lot of polarization and mistrust um, of people who don't share the same opinions that we hold. I'll admit I'm guilty of getting swept up into political debates, um, and when two people are defending their views and it's part of their identity, I've noticed that the conversation can get negative and personal really quickly. I know I've taken part in political discussions with some people that I value most in my life, and we're talking about a difficult topic, and I walk away feeling worse about the person than I did before, and it's impacted my relationship with them. I'm not proud of that, and it's something I'm trying to work on, but sometimes I have a tough time separating out my personal views and my perception of another person, and it can, you know, there's lots of strong feelings that, you know, you got to keep in check, and it's hard to separate that out sometimes from the actual relationship that I value and that I share with this other person. What if we could use shared musical experiences to start resetting our views of other people? Like, what if the next time you get into a tough conversation with someone else, you just tapped to the beat of a song on the radio for a few minutes before you start the discussion? Would we be able to sympathize or empathize even with another person's experience a little more and have a more productive, understanding conversation? And I don't at all mean to say that just tapping your fingers can fix these heated debates that we might try to avoid over the dinner table. And there's obviously no quick fix to our charged political environment. But I think there's a possibility that even a quick tapping exercise could prime us or make it a little easier to unconsciously remind ourselves that despite our differences, we can share a positive experience with someone else. Even if we don't align with someone else's personal opinions, we can still enter into a very, very short-term alliance with another person through music and entrainment that might prepare us to have a more civil, empathic, and more productive listening conversation. There have been a few studies looking at interpersonal finger tapping that suggest I'm not completely coming out of left field with this idea. The research team of Stu Pocker, Wood, and Witt found that participants were more helpful towards people who tapped to music in sync with them than people who tapped out of sync to music. Even small musical acts with others can positively influence our social expectations of them. Could experiencing music together help us connect with others, even with people we've just met? Because music operates on a very fundamental level that speaks to how we developed social relationships as humans who want to work towards shared goals and values and things that are important to us, I think that there's a lot of potential to work music into building and supporting our relationships and our daily lives.
All right, episode two is done. Thank you again for listening. If you want more information on the research articles that we covered today, check those out at our website, instrumentalpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at, at @instrumentalpod for the latest news and updates on what we're doing. New episodes will be coming out on Friday, so please subscribe and share with others. Instrumental is written and hosted by me, Bria Murakami, and our intro music was written by Daniel Goldschmidt. I'll see you next time.